there would have been a time when for me to open a Bible would have been a complete joke. In fact, I remember I was sitting in a fraternity meeting when I was in college, and a Campus Crusade, Campus Crusade for Christ guy asked if he could speak to our fraternity, and uh, that, that's just ridiculous. I was sitting in the back row, and as he was standing up in front, making his presentation, I was making farting noises and laughing and giggling and telling jokes to my friends. I'm so ashamed of that now. But it tells you where I was at. Uh, I was an atheist, complete born-again atheist, you might say. And uh, I was called, well, let me read this real quickly. Therefore, I discovered this scripture 27 years ago. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, and you know the rest of the story. Listen, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? I've had the privilege of traveling on all seven continents, and um, I'm going to share a few of those trips with you in a few minutes. But I'll start with this story. A woman came up to me and said, uh, my neighbor has been told by the physician that visits our island about twice a year that he's dying of liver disease. And he wondered, he heard there were American doctors on the island and wondered if we would come and confirm that diagnosis. Uh, I'm a dentist, so it's a little bit of a challenge to examine someone's liver uh, expertly, you might say. But um, I got the other physician on the trip, a pediatrician, uh, to go over there at the end of the week. Uh, the woman took us to his house, and on the way over there, she said, I just want to warn you, he's an avowed atheist, and uh, he will throw you out of the house if you mention the word God to him. So we went to his house, and his two granddaughters, daughter, wife, and us uh, came into the bedroom, and he was just flopped all over the bed. You could tell he was definitely dying. His skin was a terrible color. His eyes were bright yellow. And uh, the physician sat down next to him on the bed, and he kind of poked and prodded a little bit, and he said, yes, I have to confirm the diagnosis is correct. You are dying of liver disease. And the man said, thank you. It's all through a translator. I had a feeling come over me. I put my hand on his shoulder, and I said, would it be okay if I examine him? And he looked up at me like, yes. So uh, he got up, and I sat down. And I said, would it be all right if I examine your thyroid gland? And he said, I guess, sure. So I reached up and I squeezed on his neck and I told him, oh, I'm happy to tell you that your thyroid gland is fine. So the man's just been told he's dying and, but his thyroid's healthy. So that was the bottom line there. But then I said to him, I haven't come 7,000 miles to check your thyroid. I'd like to tell you a story. And he said, go ahead. 
At the end of the story, tears were streaming down his face. He said to me, could this God that you described forgive me? I've rejected him my entire life. I've abused my wife, my children, my grandchildren as an alcoholic. How could God possibly forgive me? And I said, there's no one who's outside of his love. He can forgive you and give you new life. I had the privilege of taking his hands in mine, leading him in a sinner's prayer through the translator. And you've heard the term peace of God, which passes all understanding. He got it. His whole countenance changed before our eyes as the Holy Spirit entered him. And the room was just full of the Spirit. And we were all crying and rejoicing. And it was just a really neat time. Finally, it was time to go. And so the physician and I took off down this little sandy trail to our hut. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me that maybe my whole life had that God had allowed my whole life to happen the way it did for the sake of that man who he loved that much to save him. It was just amazing. So you may wonder what the story is, so I'll, I'll share that with you next. Um, as a kid, <clears throat> I got into a lot of trouble. Uh, I loved to blame it on my dad. I grew up on the south side of Chicago. My father was an alcoholic. Uh, we had a really, you might call a nasty situation in our home. My little brother was five years younger. My mother, my dad, uh, he couldn't keep a job normally more than a few months. We'd move from apartment to apartment. Uh, my mom never allowed me to have a birthday party, never allowed to have, in my entire childhood, never allowed to have another kid over to my house to play or to spend the night. This may sound like a sad story or a sob story. It's not meant to be that way. It's just what it was. <clears throat> um, I became very bitter and angry. And what friends I had at school, I think I literally pushed them away from me because I was so sour all the time. And I hated my father. My mother, when I was 13, I was sitting in my room, and I happened to look up as my mother walked by, and she had a 10-inch butcher knife in her hand. She was walking like a zombie. My father was passed out on the sofa in the front room of this, of this uh, two-flat that we were living in. I jumped up and ran after her, and I grabbed her arm just as she was about to plunge it into my father's chest. I saved his life, but I didn't want to. I wanted him to die. I hated him so much for what he had done to our family. And by the time I was 16, I had kind of given up. I, I was so angry and bitter. I had no friends. I saw no future. I decided the only thing to do was just to kill myself. So I planned it all out. But I remember somebody had told me that you can't ask for forgiveness after you commit suicide. And, and so you can't go to heaven. I didn't know if that was true. I didn't know if there was a heaven, honestly. I didn't know if there was a God. I remember as a little child every day praying to God that he would fix my dad so we could have a normal family. And he never answered that prayer. So I felt at that time that if God does exist, he doesn't care about me. But that thing that I heard kind of scared me a little bit. And so I did the next best thing and ran away from home. I'm so glad that I did. I could have closed a door on my life in despair and anger and bitterness. And I would have never known what 
this God had prepared for me. When I was in, I ran away to Hayward, a little town in northwest Wisconsin, and uh, moved in with my aunt, and I had planned on finishing high school there. And my aunt said at the end of the summer, Jimmy, you, you have to go home. You're the, the man of the house. If, if you're not there, what might happen to your mom or your little brother? So she talked me into going back, and I went back to, to uh, Chicago and uh, finished out high school. But I had met some kids in Hayward um, who thought that if you were from Chicago, you're somehow related to Al Capone, and <laughs> somehow that made me cool. I don't know. But anyway, uh, so I decided to try and get into college. I was in the lower half of my high school graduating class, but I applied to school where they were going, which is Eau Claire, and I somehow got in there. I'm very thankful for that. Uh, while I was at college, I was struggling to maintain a C average, and uh, I got recruited by a fraternity, and I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be part of something so bad. I understand why people join gangs and all this other stuff. They just, they just want to be accepted. And uh, I went through the pledging process, and the last night they lined up all the pledges, and they announced that we were all successfully part of the fraternity now, and we were going out to celebrate. And we went to a bar. I swore when I was a child that I would never take a sip of alcohol in my life after seeing how it ruined my family. But I sat down in the bar, and they set a shot in front of each of us. And I had to make a decision. I wanted so much to be accepted. If I didn't drink that shot, what would they think of me? Would they reject me and say that I wasn't worthy of being their friend because I couldn't drink with them? I decided to take that drink. And then it opened up a whole new chapter in my life. <clears throat> uh, my wife was at the earlier service. She can confirm my going out uh, with my friends two, three, four nights a week, drinking pitches of beer, two pitches of beer, coming home at three or four in the morning, going to work at seven o'clock. I can't imagine what my patients thought when they smelled the hook all in my breath. <clears throat> when I, uh, when I um, took a biology class, I started to fell in love with studying, and I did very well the rest of my college experience, and I decided to apply to dental school because some of my fraternity friends were going to dental school. I was a sheep for sure. And I got into dental school, and there's a whole story about that which I'll skip because of the time. I uh, was very successful in dental school, president of my class, the whole bit, and uh, then took a one-year job in Marshfield and then settled in Wapaka. Uh, bought a little house on the chain of lakes and started living the good life. Uh, I had snowmobiles, motorcycles, six boats. Um, I, I, I was completely selfish, self-centered, trying to fill in the, the void in my life with toys, maybe making up for my childhood. I don't know, psychologists would have fun analyzing this story. But ultimately, uh, I got bored with all that, so I decided to start flying. So I took flying lessons, bought an airplane, then another airplane, and I was up to five airplanes, almost a million dollars in debt. No hope of paying that off. And I still wasn't happy. I started having these dreams that I should be going to a foreign country and doing dentistry for the poor. And I, I realized that I was completely selfish and self-centered. And maybe if I did something good for somebody else just once, I'd feel better about myself. So I wrote a letter to the Lutheran church where I was attending. By the way, I was faithfully attending every Sunday my beautiful wife on one end, my four absolutely beautiful children 
my two boys with their little bow ties, my little girls with their pink dresses, me on the other side. I'm sure people sitting around me in church looked at me and thought, wow, what a wonderful Christian man. If they only knew what a complete hypocrite I was. In college, my professors told me there is no God. God was made up by ignorant people back in the day that couldn't explain what they were seeing, so they invented the idea of God, and I bought into that hook, line, and sinker and became an absolute atheist. Maybe for two reasons. One, because I didn't think God cared about me. Two, that if there is no God, then I'm in control. I can take my life and do what I want with it. Well, I wrote a letter to the Lutheran Church asking if they could use a dentist somehow in a foreign country because of these dreams. And on the day I received the letter, I was opening my mail at lunch, read their rejection letter saying, we're sorry, but unless you can give three months or more, or more uh, you, you, we can't use you. And uh, my first patient after lunch happened to be a minister. And uh, when I walked in the room to do his checkup, he looked at me and he could see something wasn't right. And he asked me, Jim, is everything okay? And I said, no, I, I've had these dreams and I feel like I'm supposed to go do dentistry. He said, that's really interesting. I just uh, got a letter from an organization that's coming up to Marshfield to recruit dentists, uh, physicians, nurses for short-term mission trips overseas. I said, oh, okay. So he gave me the letter and I went over to Marshfield, heard their pitch. What I liked about it was it was just one week you know, I'd laid on all the beaches in the Caribbean, and I thought, well, I could stand a week of being in the jungle. I don't know. So I, I signed up for a trip to Honduras, actually, in August of 1990, uh, 27 years ago next month. Uh, got down to Miami at the airport, and the people were chaos everywhere with people speaking Spanish. If you've been to Miami, you know what that's like. And I'm searching all over, and I finally see this little group of people off in the distance, and I... As I got closer, there was this guy holding up a sign saying healthcare ministries. And as I got closer still, there were a couple of people kneeling on the ground praying in the Miami airport and a couple other people singing hymns in the Miami airport. And I thought, oh man, I've gotten in with some really weird people here. <clears throat> but I, I made the commitment, so I walked over and introduced myself. And they were very gracious and kind to me, actually. Uh, flew down to Honduras. On Sunday night, we had a meeting. And they were gonna, they told us what would happen while we were doing the clinic at this uh, banana plantation uh, place where 2,000 people lived. Um, during the meeting, a Honduran national burst through the doors and told us that there may be gunfire the next day at that village because it was three kilometers from a military base and the banana workers were threatening to go on strike. They were earning $2 for a 12-hour workday and they wanted a five cent a day raise. The government was afraid that the economy would collapse because 40% or 70% of their national product was bananas. So he said, if you hear gunfire, find a place to hide. And uh, so they wanted me to pull teeth. Number one, I'm a restorative dentist. I don't pull teeth. I hadn't pulled a tooth in years unless I could take it out with my fingers. Uh, they wanted me to share the gospel with each person. There's no way I was going to do that. And then number three, I may be shot. So I didn't sleep well that night, but fortunately the strike was called off in the early hours of the morning. And uh, so I got on the bus and we're heading to the village and I'm regretting this decision big time. It's really hot and I can't stand hot weather. It's even hot in here right now for me, I'm sweating. Yeah. But anyway, um, the dust is coming in the windows of this bus 
and I'm just miserable. Finally, I decided this hypocrisy has gone on long enough. This, this is getting serious now. They're expecting me to talk about this Jesus. I went over and sat next to the minister that I had met the day before from Puerto Rico. His name is Jose. I said, Jose, I'll try my best to pull teeth. I'll do whatever he asks me to do, but I don't want to share the gospel with anybody. I don't want to be responsible for someone's salvation. He said, Jim, it's not you that does the saving. It's the Holy Spirit of God. Your job is to love each person that he puts in front of you, and he'll take care of the rest. He then did something very strange. He put his hands on my head, and he started praying out loud. It kind of freaked me out, actually, when his hands touched me. But at the same time that his hands touched me, I just started to cry like a baby. I can't remember how many years before that was the last time I had cried. Probably as a kid, I cried all the time, I guess, when, when my parents were fighting or whatever. But as an adult, I never cried. Um, I broke my hand beating, beating in people's faces as a teenager. You can see the knuckle never developed there because of the, the punching. And uh, it's been a reminder every day of my practice life that I have to take my latex glove and snug it up on that finger before I start to work because I'm a lefty. Um, everyone could see around me on the bus that I was crying, that something was really wrong. All of a sudden, I felt all these other hands reach in, and pretty soon a whole bunch of hands were touching me. And I, everyone was praying out loud, and it was just the most strange thing. And I'm sobbing. And then I heard Jose say these words, Father, fill him with your Holy Spirit and anoint him for the work that needs to be done. As he said those words, I felt an extra set of hands reach through all the other hands into the center of my being and touch me with love, unconditional love. I can't even describe to you what an amazing experience that was. I knew in that instant that God does exist, and he's everything that the Bible says about him. I, I don't think I had ever opened the Bible, but when I came home from that trip, my mother gave me a Bible, and I spent 12 years day and night trying to study and learn about this being that had touched me with his love. When that bus arrived at the village, I wanted to run out the door and tell everyone that I met that they could have this peace, they could have this joy, they could have this forgiveness that I had received. It was for any, anybody who was willing to accept it. My first patient was a soldier, ironically. Even though they had called off the strike, he had come, and there were probably 500 people waiting in line. They had slept in the hills and slept on the ground overnight because they were wanting to see an American doctor's. This soldier came through with his gun and his uniform, and he had this angry, bitter look on his face, pushed his way through the crowd and to this young college-age girl who was registering people and demanded to be seen now. And she decided not to make trouble, so she said, okay, and they brought him back to the dental section. So he's sitting in the chair, and I could tell this is an angry dude. I mean, his face was so literally angry. You've seen people like that. And... So I said, uh, you know, how can I help you? And he pointed to the rotten tooth that he had. And uh, so I walked over to the table, and I injected him with Santa Edisantic. And while I was waiting for that to soak in, I said to him, 
Uh, and I, I've said silly things in my life, a lot of silly things, but the thyroid gland was one of those, but this is another one. <laughs> I said to him, uh, is there a church on the military base? And he said, no, there's no church on the military base. And it, I mean, his spit was coming out. He was so angry. I said, where do you go to church then? He said, I don't go to church. I don't believe in God. He was really hostile. So I said, can I tell you a story? And remember now, I had only received Christ a few days before. But I told him about my experience, my childhood, and then that moment on the bus. By the time I got to the moment about the bus, Tears were streaming down this man's face. And I stopped and I said, are, are you okay? And he said, could this God that you described forgive me for what I've done? I'm an alcoholic. I've abused my wife. I've abused my children. Could God forgive me too? I said, yes, there's no one who's outside of his love. I had the privilege of taking his hands in mine. I didn't know the sinner's prayer, but the, the interpreter did, so led us in the words, he accepted Jesus and his countenance before my eyes changed. I've seen this hundreds of times, hundreds of times, as he was filled with the peace of God. It was the most amazing thing. I pulled his tooth out, sent him out through the crowd, and he literally walked out of there, dragging his gun by the barrel on the, and just looking up with tears in his eyes, praising God, who we had just met two minutes before. Just amazing. When I came home from that trip, knew that my father wasn't saved. I told you how I hated and despised him my whole life at 44 years old. I went up to Hayward where my father was living. When I knocked on the door, I stepped towards him like this and he actually stepped back. I think maybe he thought I was gonna hit him. Instead, I kept walking forward and I embraced my father. I said, Dad, I just want to tell you that I love you and I forgive you for everything that happened. And can I tell you a story? And he said, come in. And so we sat on the sofa and I told him this whole story. And by the time I got to the part about the bus, the tears were streaming down my father's face. He said, could God forgive me? After everything that I've done, I said, yes, Dad. There's no one who's outside of his love. I had the privilege of taking my father's hands in mine, leading in the sinner's prayer. For 12 wonderful years, my father never took a drink after that day. And we had a wonderful relationship until, until he died in his 90s. Um, the moral of the story is to keep praying. Be faithful to pray for those people, your loved ones, friends, co-workers who don't know the Lord. It took until I was 44 years old before I came to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, there's no one who's outside of his love, so... Um, what I'd like to do now is uh, just show some pictures of some of these trips real quick before my time is up. And I'm going to sit down there with you so that uh, there's no distractions here and you can look at these, these pictures. Uh, we've got 60 countries to go through in how many minutes? <laughs> just, just kidding, just kidding. Usually it's a two and a half hour deal, so we'll, we'll just do a few highlights here. Uh, this is the, a country called Bangladesh, and it's right here. Uh, this is India, this is Burma, and uh, our missionaries are heading for Nepal, right up here, uh, just on the southern border of China. 
so you can get an idea, here's Vietnam when the Vietnam War happened. Uh, Bangladesh is a, about the same size geographically as Wisconsin, and there are 300 million people living there. So if you took all the people west of the Mississippi River and all the people of Canada and moved all those people into Wisconsin, that's how crowded it is there. It's the most population-dense country in the world. It's also the poorest country in the world. The per capita income is $100 a year. That includes the rich. If you were in the capital city of Dhaka, a city of about 6 million people, you'd uh, pay a few pennies, and this is the taxi service that they have to get around in the city. If you uh, spend 20 bucks a month to sponsor a child, you know, all know about those programs. Here's an example of one of those uh, programs, and the kids get uniforms to wear, and they get books to study, and they get to go to school. Here's another organization that does the same thing. Uh, we're on our way to a, a little town called Cox's Bazaar, and a monsoon had swept through Bangladesh in 1991, through the Bay of Bengal area where India comes up, and the, most of Bangladesh is only a foot above sea level. And so when the monsoon swept in, it drowned 125,000 people. And incredible numbers of cattle and all the rotting. You can imagine how terrible the disease situation was. Then on top of that, some people over in Burma, about 200,000 people, Bengalis had moved into Burma and everyone hates the Bengalis, they're the lowest caste of society, lower than the untouchables in India. No one wants the Bengalis, they're the literally lowest class. And so a bunch of guys decided they were sick of having Bengalis in their country, and they went into this little town with machetes, and they slaughtered 5,000 people. The rest of the Bengalis that were in the country, or most of them, about 180,000, went across the border back into Bangladesh, into this little town called Cox's Bazaar, and there was no water or food to feed 180,000 people. So the UN started airlifting food and water, and they invited us along with other medical uh, teams to come in and work in the refugee camp there. And we were, that's where we were headed when I took this picture. Um, the, unfortunately, the UN uh, guy that ran the camp told us we couldn't enter to help the people unless we produced a serious bribe. And we, we could not as Christians accept that, and so we went on to plan B, and uh, three of us went and dug out canoes, and the other three went up to the border of Nepal and worked, and the three of us went in the back country of Bangladesh. Sounds like there's a person every square foot there, but in reality there are vast areas where there aren't many people. As we went by dugout canoe and walking from village to another, we actually came to a village of about 100 people where no one in the village had ever heard of the United States. Can you imagine being that remote in the world that you had never heard of the United States of America? Just amazing. So uh, let's very quickly go through the rest here. I, I do a lot of talking. Uh, <coughs> oh, when I, when I got back, I passed my pastor on Highway 22 as I was heading to my house, and I honked on the horns, squealed around, and chased after him until I caught up to him. And I said, Can I, I'd like to tell the story of what happened on this trip to the people of the church. And he said, that's fine. So there was an 8, 9, 15, and 10.30 service. I started at the 8 o'clock, talked through the 9.15, through the 10.30. 
And all the people from the 8 o'clock service and the 915 service stayed. And all the people of the 1030 service stayed. Everyone was weeping and <laughs> crying, and it was just the most amazing, wonderful uh, experience to share with my, my brothers and sisters in Christ about what happened. Uh, there were some people that were guests that day, uh, family from California and a couple other places, uh, and they came up to me after and said, would you come and talk at my church? And so... I'm not a public speaker. I used to throw up every time I had to give a speech in high school speech class. Um, I was in the bathroom before this service because <laughs> I am petrified to talk to people. But because I am nothing, I'm, I am nothing. He is everything. And Paul said about himself, in my weakness is his strength, and my weakness is made perfect in his strength. And that's how I feel about my life. You know, there's that story about the person who had one talent and five talents and two talents and all that. I was a totally self-centered, selfish person who had zero talents. And God made something out of nothing. He took the dirt from the ground and created a new person in me, and I'm so thankful for that. But I've had a chance to speak on university campuses, Notre Dame University, Evangel University, just a whole bunch of them. I love talking to college kids. This is a college campus in Bangladesh. Uh, how, how much time do I got left? Okay. Um, in the city of Dhaka, are tens of thousands of children who are homeless. They wander the streets, and people who have enough food, there's no refrigeration, there's no electricity in the city to speak of. So people have enough food for their evening meal. They will, after they're done eating, if they have leftovers, they will bring it and scrape it into these barrels. These barrels are all over the city, and the children will come and, and eat out of those barrels. Here are some of those kids. Uh, these kids slept on the ground the night before. I'm walking along this, uh, this street early in the morning. These little boys have just woken up. And uh, their, their job, their way to earn a living for them is to collect garbage. They take their little gunny sacks there, and then they go around and pick up paper, metal bits, whatever. When they have a full bag of garbage that they can take to the recycling area, then they earn a couple of pennies, which will buy them enough rice to get them through the day. A little further down the same street, just a few feet further, here are four more children, two little girls, that girl with a yellow dress. It's the only clothing she owns, and she's sorting through her bag of, of garbage there, as you can see, to see what, what might be of value. Uh, people who have a nice house would look like this. People who don't have a house live like this. When I talk to kindergartners or all through the school ages, I tell them, make sure you go home tonight and hug your parents who provided you with a roof over your head and food to eat. Um, there's another, another Bible passage I'll just quickly read here. I wasn't going to, but uh, we all know this story. Oh, 
I'll, I'll just tell you the story. You all know it. A rich man was <clears throat> sitting at his table, and outside at the gate was this poor man. I was... Uh, oh, let, me, let me finish this, and then I'll get to that. Um, here, here's a bunch of uh, homes that are built out of cardboard, papers, basically garbage. And this, these uh, homes run for two miles along the railroad tracks as you enter the city. About 30 people live in each one of these homes. And that wall behind the, build, the, build, the houses there is a, a uh, flood wall. So every year when the monsoon comes through, it floods this area, washes these homes away and everything. All their possessions are gone, and then they have to start out again. In the middle of that is this missionary's hut, and as he... Uh, gets donations, he hands out food and clothing to the children. This little girl in the middle, is uh, he called his princess in rags. He took me to the shopping area to meet her. At eight years old, she was kicked out of the house. Very common. It's a Muslim culture, and girls have no value in society. They are not allowed to have jobs. And so if a family does not have enough food to feed all their children, they will tell the little girls they have to leave and never come back. This little girl was kicked out of her house at the age of eight years old. She wandered the streets and eventually came to this little shopping area and behind that building, she found a cardboard box in the alley that was just big enough for her to crawl into. Uh, when another girl came along though that did not have a cardboard box to sleep in, that little girl gave her her box. This is two years later, she's 10 years old She's taking care of 30 children in the alley behind that building. She makes sure they have enough food to eat before she eats herself, and they all have a little cardboard box to sleep in. I was so humbled to meet this little girl who has absolutely nothing of the world's possessions, and yet she was able to help people because of the heart of love, a Christ-like love. It was very humbling for me. Um, I was going to talk about uh, diseases of the world, but I'll skip that for since we're in a church setting. Here's the world's largest thyroid gland, probably. But this is a little bit gross here for those kids who are here. Just be aware of the story, okay? This man, uh, I was leaving this little hut when we were paddling along from village to village. I, someone told me there was lunch prepared, and so I walked out of my hut, and as I walked by this man, I didn't even, I didn't even notice him. He was leaning on a crutch. His shirt was pulled up by his neck, and he tapped me. He brushed my arm as I walked past, and he went like this, and I thought, oh, maybe he's got arthritis or something, and so I asked him, would you just sit on the ground and then when I'm done with my lunch, I'll come and we'll take a look at it. I'm so ashamed of that. When I came back, I gently helped him up. We went into the hut, and he began to pull the layers of rags off of his shoulder until he exposed this. This is skin cancer, squamous cell carcinoma. That's why we put suntan lotion on. When I looked in his face, I realized I was looking at Lazarus, the man who sat outside the gate of the rich man. 
and the dogs came and licked his sores. You guys all remember the story. And then I looked at myself and realized I am the rich man. Everybody in the United States is a rich man compared to the life these people live. I started to feel really guilty, and then God convicted me and showed me that I'm here and I have the life I have because of him. Every talent we have, every dollar that we've ever earned is because of God's graciousness to us, his love for us, his kindness to us. But we have a responsibility to act wisely with the money that he's given us. Does he say to give it all away? He did to one rich man because he knew in his heart that rich men cared more about his material things than he did about the Lord. But for all of us, he, there's hope because he says, just give me 10%. You re, you're in charge of the 90%. I'll let you be steward of that. Just give me 10%. He even says, prove me. Try it and see. And so that's one of the first things the Lord convicted me of when I came back from the trip. And I don't talk about money ever, and I don't ask for money ever, so I just decided to throw that out there. But anyway, let me get to the end here now. Uh, we're back in uh, we're back in Honduras now. The very first trip on Wednesday, and this woman uh, presented herself to me, and we had no electricity in this village, but we had good flashlights. And uh, so through the translator, I asked her what, what the problem was, and she said, I, I can't chew, I can't close my mouth. So I had her open her mouth, and I looked in her mouth, and this is what I saw. Behind her last molar tooth, there were four rotten teeth along this whole area here. But behind that last tooth, there was a tumor growing in her mouth. And it wasn't as big as a ping pong ball, but it was probably about the size of maybe a quarter. And the... The tissue was growing into her cheek right here. I'm pretty sure it was oral cancer, but I'm not absolutely sure. I was about to tell her there's nothing I can do to help, but I walked away instead and picked up a bunch of surgical instruments that were laying on the table that healthcare ministries had provided. I went back to her, gave her an ascetic, shared Jesus with her, and she gladly accepted Jesus as her Savior. And then in less than three minutes, my hands just flew, and I took out four teeth, and I cut that tumor out of her mouth, including a, a quarter-sized chunk out of her cheek, where I literally just hacked into the muscle of her cheek to remove the tumor. I stuffed a bunch of gauze in her mouth, and when she told her to come back in one hour, and when she left, I realized what I had done. I had no knowledge, actually, of actually doing it until after she left. And I became so ashamed because I just hacked her mouth. I'm not a surgeon. I'd never done any surgery like this. And so I went behind the building and threw up. I came back, and an hour later she came back, and her mouth was stuffed with gauze that I had put in. When I reached in and grabbed on the gauze, I saw that it was everything was bloody. When I pulled it out, I could squeeze the gauze and wring the blood out of it. And when the last of the gauze separated from the area where the tumor was, there was an artery going like that, shooting across her mouth. I panicked because there was nothing I could do. I had no idea what to do. And we were leaving in two days, and this is a remote village, and she'd have no access to medical care. Then I had this peace come over me. It's happened so many times. I walked into the next building. We were in a little school there. 
and walked up to one of the physicians who was sitting at a little stool examining an old man. I said to him, I need your electrocauter device. And he looked up at, up at me. First of all, I didn't know what an electrocauter device was. It just came out of my mouth. He looked up at me and he said, boy, that's really interesting. I was on my way to the airport and I decided I better go back to my office and get my electrocauter device. So he opened up his doctor bag and he pulled this thing out. It looks like a charcoal lighter. You pull a trigger and there's a wire on the end. When they're doing surgery, if there's bleeding, they just touch that little thing. Chuck would know all about this better than me. And it just stops the bleeding. So he showed me how to work it and I went back and when, she, when I stuck it in her mouth, she swallowed and her tongue got burnt by that little wire and then her cheek got burnt and the bone was smoking and I could not get it to stop. It, I butchered it, it was bad. I finally had to go get the physician. I said, I can't do this, you're gonna have to help me. And so he came in and I held a light for him and then we'd switch hands and somebody touched the right spot eventually and all of a sudden it stopped bleeding. I stuffed her mouth full of gauze and said, come back in one hour. This time when she came back, the gauze was pure white. There wasn't even a tiniest little kink. And I was so afraid at that point because there should be capillary bleeding. There should be some oozing of blood out of that exposed bone that I had created that would keep that bone alive. And without it, the bone could die and she could potentially die from this. It was really bad. So I gave her some more gauze. I didn't know what else to do, so I sent her home, but I did tell her to come back the next day. And that evening then I got the group together and asked them to please pray for this woman, that she might be okay. Next morning, I went out every hour to look for her. She wasn't there. Finally, a little after one, I went out to look for her again, and there she was sitting on the stool outside the building. I could see that she'd been crying, and I put my arm under her armpit and helped her up. And I asked her through the translator when we got inside, what, why are you crying? Are you in pain? And she said, no, I'm not having any pain, but something is happening in my mouth. She's repeating this over and over very rapidly in Spanish, and her 20-year-old daughter was with her, and she said, yes, there's something happening. So I told her to sit down, and I had her open her mouth and with a flashlight, and this is what I saw. Where 24 hours before, there were four sockets from two big molars, two bicuspids that had come out, that area of her cheek where I had cut the tumor away that was about the size of a quarter was baby's butt, fresh, brand new pink skin, completely fixed, you might say. The tissue, that, the scallop, loose tissue around this side of where the teeth came out, this, the bone that had been burned was all gone, her tongue was healed. This tissue had grown all the way over the socket holes and was growing up in between the cheek and the the bony ridge there called the vestibule. I have a couple of degrees. I'm a biologist, I'm a scientist. I can tell you this cannot happen in 24 hours. It's physically impossible for this to happen. So even though I was in complete denial that miracles do happen, I believe that God showed us a miracle that day. And uh, since then I've been invited, like I said, to talk all over the eastern half of the United States about 800 times when I stopped counting. And uh, the message, hopefully, that I've given every one of those times is that I'm an example that no one is outside of his love. God took a nothing like me and made something that could be useful to him, and I'm so grateful for the privilege he's given me. 
And uh, I th I'll just quit right now. There's, I, you know, I could go on for another, I don't know, days. <laughs> but anyway, thank you for being so attentive and so gracious. And I realize it's a holiday weekend, and I'm, I've, I've kept you over the time, and I apologize for that. But uh, anyway, I'll just.